Uh, last time we looked at how Jesus Christ is better than Aaron and is in fact the perfect high priest from the order of Melchizedek. And now today we're moving on. And now we land on one of the five warning passages. That is this one in the center here, verses 511 through 612. We're going to be stopping at, at 68 and the other two verses will be picked up next week. Uh, but we are really looking at this warning passage this morning. And since we are on a warning passage, let's, let's talk about for a minute what a warning is so we can come into it with the right mindset. Uh, a warning generally is in light of something and has clear consequences. Right? I'm, I'm a, well, I was a, a teacher uh, to 10-year-olds, 5th graders, and if they spoke out and interrupted me, uh, I would tell them, I would say, do not speak out and interrupt me again, or you will lose your recess. I would give a clear warning, cause and effect. Uh, and the question this morning is, what is the author of Hebrews trying to express with this warning? What is this in light of? And what are the consequences concerning it? Let's, let's read the passage together now and, and see what this warning says firsthand. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Holy Scripture says this, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Of which we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil." Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again while repent, uh, to repentance while they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Please remain standing with me as we go before the Lord. Uh, dear Lord, we come before you now and we ask for you to glorify your own name. Lord, we ask for understanding of these things. We know that we can understand nothing apart from you. We can produce no good apart from you. So Lord, right now, uh, we just admit that dependence and that reliance on you to understand these things, and we pray that we will be transformed by them, and we will leave this place changed in light of them to the ends of you receiving all glory, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Indeed, this is a call for Jewish Christians, and since it is inspired and preserved for us, it is a call for us to hold fast to Christ, God's heavenly gift. And, and look, holding fast to our treasure is everything. This is really a warning for us to do just that. To, as true and genuine saints, press on and continue 
despite temptations to quit, to press on into maturity. And we see what happens when one doesn't do this, when one doesn't press on to maturity and they let go of Christ. Eventually, this can lead to one falling away, according to 6, verse 6. And we'll talk about what, what this means. However, clearly... The thrust from the author of Hebrews to the readers is to hold fast to this gift. Hold fast to Christ. Do not let him go. He is the great treasure we must hold tightly to. Now, what makes this confusing is that Hebrews is sort of written to a mixed bag. Some of them are genuine believers, while others are merely professing. And the author of Hebrews himself, you know, he was just a human himself. He doesn't know who is who. And so here he gives a, a general warning to all, everyone who hears this, hold fast to the gift of God that is Jesus. And, and here's the thing, if you're saved, you will love that warning. If you are saved, you will say amen to that warning to hold fast to Christ. You will heed the warning. But, but for the unsaved, unfortunately, they will neglect this warning and they will not hold fast. This morning we see that Christ is revealed as God's heavenly gift that we must not fall away from. And I believe we all know those who started off in Christianity, who made a claim, who seemed to understand the gospel. They could tell it to you with their mouth. But in time... They became quite apathetic. And with apathy is immaturity. There's, there's no growth there. They, they eventually failed to hold fast. Eventually apostatized, falling away from the faith, rejecting Christ. And for some, what I just described is it's our friends. For some, what I described, that's, that's our wayward children. Perhaps it's, it's a parent who couldn't bear the loss of their child to cancer. And so, in light of temptation, in light of whatever it is, they forsake the faith. For us, practically speaking, the intricacies of this aside, which we will get into, simply put, today's message, if understood and applied, can prevent this awful thing from happening. It needs not happen. Heed the warning. If you are saved, if you are true, you will heed this warning to hold fast. You will hold tight to it like, it, like Christ is the most precious possession you have. And friends, that's because he is if you are truly saved. Take, take these things seriously. In, in light of the view of the treasure, you have the gift that has been given to you. And so, so this warning for the saint, it will strike a passion for them to continue to hold fast, to, to press on to maturity, to continue to grow. That passion is given to you by God, by the way. Here, here, here is what, how, how we've break, broken down this passage to, to three points. One, we first see the rebuke to focus on the gift. Then we see an exhortation, uh, an encouragement to understand that gift and to, to grow in that maturity. And lastly, we see the warning to hold fast to the gift. So let's, let's get into this and we'll start by looking at this rebuke that starts in chapter 5, verse 11. And here's what it says. It's, verse 11 actually begins with these words, of which we have much to say. Now, before we jump, in, jump into that, we need to know what of which is referring to. What, what of what we have much to say. What is this concerning? And, and we see that it is concerning Christ, what he just spoken about, Christ, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I highly uh, encourage you, if you did not hear last week's message, go back and listen to it. It might uh, bring some clarity here as well. Uh, this, is, this is really about understanding and knowing who Jesus is in a deep way. 
about the role that he's done, the salvation that he's offered. This is about moving on from, from the old understanding of that imperfect priesthood and moving on to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And then that he offers true salvation. This is what this rebuke is about, understanding these things. You know, perhaps some of these readers in this, this mixed group, you know, they were stuck in this old way of thinking, this, this idea of the old, the blurry Old Testament, and they never wanted to see the clear picture. And, and why is that the case? Why couldn't they see this clear picture? Well, here comes the rebuke. He, he, he tells them why. Why they can't go deeper into this discussion just yet. And he says, of which we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Notice what happens here. The difficulty in explaining these, these things of God stems not from the explainer, but from the listener. They are dull of hearing. The word here has illusions of being sluggish. You're lacking motivation to participate, to engage deeper. This is a sharp rebuke pointing out their lack of commitment and their apathy in what is being said and shared. The author is actually saying, you know, to an extent, you don't really care enough. You're not attentive enough. You're sluggish. You're apathetic. You are dull of hearing. You don't want to hear about Jesus. You don't want to embrace this picture of Christ. And, and we all know if you love something, if you've genuinely embraced it, you're attentive when you hear about it. And if, for example, some of you might be you know, dozing off right now, but if I say this word, patriots, oh, everyone's listening now, right? Why is that? Well, that's because you are embracing Something That is because you are focusing, you're attentive, you love that thing, you see? And so what is happening here is there's an apathy towards this picture of Christ. When you're, well, but for the saint, when you're hearing about Jesus and, it, and you really are saved, you should light up when you hear his name. You should light up at the description of him as the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Because the content means so much to you because it's about the Savior. Friends, this applies to us as well, to us here and now, perhaps to us in our private studies. You know, I hope if we're questioned one day, oh, why, why didn't you read the Scriptures? We don't respond with, well, you know, I wasn't thrilled with the presentation. <laughs> this isn't about the explainer. This is about the listener. Or, or maybe a, a, uh, someone might say, oh, well, you know, books are kind of boring. Or, I didn't like the preaching style, so I, I just skipped out on that week. I wasn't really focused, you know? Some other apathetically motivated response, which is really just indicative of our dullness of hearing. No, no, these things are not boring. Books are not boring, even if you, you don't like to read them. You know, you, you could listen to them as well, but, but even still, if that book or if that, that message it has precious information regarding Jesus Christ, our Savior, that, that desire will overwhelm, that will encroach upon your, your apathy towards reading. And, and it will transform it into the sweetest of desserts as you, you partake. You know, and we, we're all guilty of this at times. I remember uh, at times as a kid, often, often just sitting in, in the chapel and just daydreaming, you know, while the, while the message is going on. Numerous things in the ser sermon, you know, are taking place. And I'm there picturing action films, people, you know, spiraling in and all sorts of stuff. And I'm getting way sidetracked. <laughs> but friends, in, in hindsight, we all know that if... if there's someone speaking of the Savior which we love. You know, eventually, we're going to grow out of that. We're, we're going to want to hear about him. We're going to want to know him deeper. We're going to want to partake in the delicacies of God's word. So, so friends, don't be dull of hearing. Don't be sluggish in diving into deep truths. Don't let your, your preferences dictate 
your, your hearing as well. As long as the truth that is presented is biblical and it is God's truth, you know, how dare we ex- not accept it and not dive deep into it with eagerness? Do not be dull of hearing. And it actually does affect us when we're dull of hearing. We see that effect. Here it says, you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. The author assumes when given enough time, when that, when that element is added, time to partake in the word of God, to, to attentively listen, once you encounter it in, in the appropriate way, it should result in spiritual maturity and growth. It shouldn't result in, in you know, immaturity if you're really taking it in. And so he says, by now, given the, the time you've had to take it in and the amount of explanations I have given of these, these principles, you should be teachers by now. You should be teaching this stuff. See, they weren't growing. They weren't maturing in their faith. And the reason they weren't, again, it's because they weren't attentive in hearing. They were dull in hearing. They heard all about this Jesus before. It wasn't the first time. It sounds like the author of Hebrews has explained this a few times to them. But they don't have true interest to understand him or grow in knowledge of him. And they remained ignorant and it had tangible effects. You know, some of us today still uh, struggle with the same old things we've always struggled with. The same sins for, for 20 years. Some of us won't teach Not really because we don't want to teach, but because we actually can't teach because we don't know what the Word is saying. And and you know, this is okay for a season. Of course, you you don't just instantly get saved and then have all of the information just like transferred to your mind instantly. It takes time. As a matter of fact, this variable of time is in here, isn't it? But given that time, if you're truly invested there should be a growth. And, and it, if not, you're, I mean, this, this dullness of hearing, it's stunting that growth from taking place. You know, if it's been years of, of staleness, you need to question, have I become dull of hearing? Where is the excitement? Where is the attentiveness? We don't grow by an doing an, uh, you know, unattentive, unfocused devotional once a day. Rather, we grow about getting excited and passionate and investing and in really trying to understand God's word and, and being passionate listeners. You know, I think about this in terms of our own church, and I can't speak with any sort of definitive, you know, rebuke here. And I, I largely point at myself as well, but we did cancel our midweek service, didn't we? Why? Largely because people weren't showing up. Now, now, I was guilty and I understand, you know, life can be busy. But do we make time for God? Does God excite us to the point where we're willing to put some things off and, and to get together? Now, now, the good news is, on Thursday nights, there's a men's group. You haven't lost that opportunity to start seeking him. There's women's groups. We just had that ministry expo, right, where we showed off all the different groups. Get involved in one. I encourage you. This is good for your growth to, to invest and in, in, in get passionate about God's word as, as, as taking it as important, as vital. This is very important. You know, I pray that men and women and children flood to these groups. You know, because when you just show up once a week and get your God fix, and, you know, that's a sign that you might be dull of hearing. There could be, again, very reasons, very good reasons one cannot show up, and I don't intend to uh, make a judgment on those. The Lord knows. But I know for me, oftentimes the vast majority of reasons were just because I wasn't interested in going. And it's no coincidence we land on this passage today. The Lord knows what his church needs. This stuff is not irrelevant to us. Consider with me, have, have we become dull of hearing? Of hearing God's word? Because this stunts growth. We can never get over that hump that we're trying to get over until we fully embrace what God has for us. Until, until we get passionate about hearing his word. And then in time... There's growth. So, so 
heed this rebuke this morning. Don't, don't delude yourself. Instead, seek him. Try again. And in fact, for growth to happen, it demands at some point that we turn from apathy and delight in whatever it is God is trying to show us. Whatever it is he's been saying, perhaps he's been saying it for a long time and we've neglected to hear, but he's waiting for us. Look at what it says elsewhere in the text. You have become dull of hearing. You have need again for some, uh, someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, for the readers uh, who are reading this letter, the, the immature, they wanted to, you know, they gravitated back to the Old Testament types rather than embracing this full picture of Christ as supreme fulfillment. And, and they needed to start again with the basics because it wasn't clicking. And then they were maybe so set in their Jewish ways of thinking, and there was too much dullness of hearing, but the author of Hebrews encourages them to start again from square one, to start again where they left off. And maybe for some of us, some, some of us are saying, you know, I've been pretty dull of hearing for a long time, and maybe this message has sparked a little bit of passion within you to seek the Lord. Well, what do, what do you do? What do I do? The author of, of Hebrews encourages for the dull in hearing, for those who look at themselves and say, wow, I'm, I'm immature. He encourages them to, to take that milk, to have that do-over. And yes, it is quite humbling. But that is the honest starting point. Just start listening. Start attentively listening to God's word. Start with the basics again. But this time, really try to understand. Pay attention, engage with it. Actively listen. Delight in it. We must acknowledge ourselves where we're at and first delight in those elementary principles of forever to grow. Right? You have to go through this stage. Imagine a baby being born. You say, oh, no milk, here's some solid food for you. It's not going to end well. You see, there's a certain humbling aspect to this. It says you need the milk. It doesn't say skip over it. I mean, certainly it's disappointing that giving the time, they haven't grown. But he doesn't say skip over. He says, go back to it. Consider it again. And the Lord says the same thing to us where we find ourselves on our journeys. Go back to it. He is there waiting for you to tentatively and, and, and really grasp the things that he has for you in his word. Yes, here again, it is a rebuke. Nonetheless, the rebuke starts with the, the milk. It's a necessary starting point prior to the solid food. Therefore, let's still begin by delighting in that. And these Jews, they needed to delight in the basics. They needed to fully embrace these basic things. You know, they were teeter-tottering, going back and forth. Oh, Judaism, it's very tempting. They needed to fully embrace those fundamental things and grasp on to them. And now we see actually a picture of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is accustomed to the word of righteousness. So he's describing first the immature here. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. Notice what he is saying here. Again, start with the milk, but eventually that milk will lead to growth. Uh, this word that's translated, you know, not accustomed to it, actually refers to being inexperienced. You haven't had enough experience yet. You are not experienced in the word of righteousness. You haven't spent enough time with it. You haven't accumulated enough ex experiences of it. And again, these experiences, they come from actively, not dully, but actively hearing the word of God. As a Christian, through time, we should grow and become accustomed to the, to the word of righteousness. We should have experiences that lead us to become accustomed and familiar with, with the truth of God's word. And again, I find it interesting here. The, it describes the word, and it says that it is the word of righteousness. It's described as righteous. It is just. It always knows the correct thing that has God's divine stamp of approval on it. To get tossed in the waves of culture. Oh, this happens so frequently in our modern American churches. To believe lies. The absolutely insane subjectivity that is infiltrating our churches. 
Friends, this is nonsense. And if you find yourself getting swayed and, oh, wow, that looks kind of, kind of good, it might be a sign that you haven't encountered this word enough. The mature have a guide. They are accustomed to the word of righteousness. It says actually later that the mature are trained by this, by practicing this, to discern good and evil. We don't need to be confused at the nonsense that is going on in culture. We have God's word. So this is functionally, for us, a call to pick up our Bibles, to become familiar with them, to know right from wrong, and and be actively and attentively hearing God's word, to become accustomed to that word of righteousness, and let it actually affect our judgments. Let it affect our actions, moreover. You know, there's, there's a lot in the Bible that even I uh, don't quite understand fully. But you know what this verse is saying? It's saying that in time, through time, if you are connected to Christ the way you ought to be, you're grasping him the way you should, you will grow. What does it say in John 15? Right, He is the source of our growth. We produce nothing without him. In time, if you are truly connected to that that vine, you you will grow. And it'll be a journey, a lifelong journey of constantly maturing. The Lord, uh, the mature will be accustomed to the word. They will eat that solid food. But even more than that, it's more than just head knowledge. It says, but the solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Notice here that the source of the maturity, it's not head knowledge. It is practice. Moreover, the word, again, accustomed to, carries that nuance of of experience. The word in verse 13 has elements of uh, going through those tests, experiencing God in a real active way, more than just up here. Right? It's like uh, people who maybe have done karate or have kids who do karate. Right? They can't read that book and then say, oh, I'm a black belt now. Right? You have to put all of that to the test. In in real life, you have to go through the test, the trial, and experience the truth of that word, experience the truth of what you know firsthand. Practice it. Practice the word of righteousness. That's what the mature do. Maturity is not reading your Bible and doing nothing with it. I know plenty of people who are very smart up here, but they're certainly not mature. You know, there are PhDs in theology who have committed years and years of studying God's Word, and they are immature. Why? Because they are not practicing these things. They're not experiencing it the way they should. They're not accustomed to it. This involves faith. Maturity involves faith in action. You know, again, I know people who have studied the Bible for years, very good at exegeting Scripture, For them, it was all an intellectual exercise. I actually know one who no longer even follows the Lord today. Sad. But the way we grow, the way in which we're, we're, we're trained to distinguish good and evil and mature to what God has for us is through a constant practice of the word of righteousness. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, am I mature in this way? And, and then pray, God, make me mature in this way. So that is the rebuke. And then in chapter 6, we see him transition to an exhortation and 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 more of an encouragement to press on into maturity. And here is is what it says. Uh, This is sort of the conclusion of the rebuke. The author takes, again, an exhortative approach, an encouraging approach. You know, why did the author of Hebrews just rebuke them in this way, say, you guys are dull of hearing? He's not saying it just to be mean, It says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press to maturity. Press on to maturity. In other words, if you want that discernment described in chapter 5, if you want that growth, it's time to move forward. It's time to go deeper. It's time to embrace the true picture of Christ. Take those elementary things and actually internalize them. 
I like how, how one commentator put this. He says, instead of moving up through grade school, passing into junior high, completing high school, and heading off to college, the Hebrew Christians were returning to kindergarten year after year. They should have been memorizing Shakespeare and doing calculus. Instead, they were singing the ABC song and stumbling over two plus two. They failed to grow out of the fundamentals of the Christian faith and life, instead repeating over again the subjects of Christianity 101. Again, it could be that they were viewing these things, these elementary things to our Christian faith, maybe with that old Jewish lens, instead of the Christ-centered lens that, that he wanted to. Remember what was, he was just talking about, too. He was talking about this idea of Christ as an, an order of Melchizedek, this new newness of it, this completeness of it. And maybe they weren't grasping that time and time again. They may have been infatuated with Old Testament typologies and, and types instead of the main thing. And so this stunted their, their conception of the elementary teachings. And now, the question remains, what are these teachings that they were stumbling over, that they couldn't quite grasp? Well, we mentioned them. Uh, he mentions them in, in the text. It says, let us press on to maturity, not again laying, uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Well, the first one he mentions is a foundation of repentance and dead works of, uh, of faith towards God. And isn't this interesting you know, I thought, in a sense, whoa, we don't graduate from the gospel, do we? Is it, does maturity mean, you know, the gospel is no longer relevant? Now, that's really not the point he's making. You know, there's a sense in which it is true. We do not graduate from the gospel. And look at the words that the scripture even uses. Repentance and dead works, uh, from dead works, and faith towards Christ are a part of the necessary, has a word there, foundation. Right? These things aren't to be entirely ignored, that's not what this is about. Again, you have, if you have that, that metaphor there, that symbol of a foundation, and it's in use here, we can conclude, hey, these things are still somewhat necessary. These things are, you can't leave these behind. They're just elementary. Actually, that term, elementary, right, elementary principles, that means basic components. You can't go on to do calculus unless you first know two plus two. Also, recall earlier, the author said, drink the milk. You need it. Everyone who is mature is at some point drank it. There's no way, he's not saying tear down the foundation and replace it. That's not the idea. It is merely pointing out that there is a proper order of things. And given this, this time, you haven't, you haven't gone beyond this. Walk before you run. But, but still aim to run. Don't be lazy or dull in hearing. It's time to grow up. It's time to move, move beyond, move deeper into this. Embrace that picture of Christ more fully. So, so yes, there is a sense in which we do not graduate from the gospel. Yet according to this text, there comes a time in another sense where we grow from this gospel milk and, and press on into maturity. See, again, that, the author is looking at this. and Remember that variable of time in verse uh, 12 in chapter 5? He's looking at this picture and saying, something's wrong. You're not truly grasping these elementary things. And we know that, yes, understanding the gospel is the foundation. But we know that there's more to our faith. right? It says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're supposed to be useful. Good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And they weren't experiencing this. And so the author is saying, why? Have you not grasped these elementary principles? The immature, they, they never grow. They, they talk an awful lot about these things and debate them and consider them. But where's the fruit showing that you've really had an understanding of these teachings? So, so yes, the gospel is, is necessary. It's 100% necessary. However, Christians necessarily grow when they understand the gospel, you see. So, so that's the first elementary principle that they, they couldn't really grasp. Now we see some, some other ones here. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of instruction about washing and laying on of hands. Here is, is mentioned instruction about washing. 
could, could be that this refers to baptism. That's what this washing is likely alluding to here. Uh, some argue, again, that maybe the Jewish practice of cleansing might be kind of blurring their vision of what this stuff means. Uh, this is perhaps the case, given the fact that this is Jewish background. Uh, I, I take it like this. Uh, it's quite possible that the conceptions of Jewish washing prevented growth for that full embrace of the Christian practices of, of baptism. That's, that's a way to look at this. But this seems to me, no, ma- no matter what it refers to, it seems to me primarily to be referring to an elementary Christian practice that they should have had a grasp on. We also see this laying on of hands. Uh, and this is often done in the early church as part of maybe an ordination of someone. We see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 6, and chapter 13, verse 3. Or to receive a spiritual blessing of some sort. We see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. But again, the point is this. They were not grasping in an appropriate way what they were supposed to regarding these church ordinances and practices. It was, it was blurred still for them. The author says, even these things are supposed to be elementary. In other words, even if you knew how to do this appropriately, this is supposed to be something elementary that we're leaving behind in 6.1. He's explained these things to them before. These things aren't character- characterizing their maturity. This is supposed to be, again, Christianity 101. But again, you need to have this down before you move on. And isn't that interesting to think about? I wonder exactly what all those principles might be specifically referring to. Uh, if church practice is considered elementary, it's the ABCs and the one, two, threes of Christianity. There's certainly an ample amount of dispute regarding some of the stuff within the church at large. And perhaps this is evident of maybe the maturity level of some of the churches that are struggling with these things. Uh, And some people, they just straight up obsess over these things. They never go beyond them. Remember, this is a call beyond this this stuff. Uh, This, again, involves real active practice in 514. And it's almost as if these these ordinances and these, these things that we think about, it's almost like sometimes we use them as an excuse to not get that experiential uh, aspect, that accustomed to the word aspect. And then let's be honest, you know, we get, at least I do, I get an awful lot of dopamine talking about church politics and, and practices sometimes. But sometimes, a lot of times me, you know, thinking about these things is me pretending to be mature. It's sort of like a ruse, uh, like a defensive mechanism to not really dive deeper experientially. To still feel mature, to feel smart, but not necessarily have it down. That could very well be the case here as well. Um, Perhaps they're obsessing again over these Old Testament types and and missing out on the fullness of what these things mean and refer to. And and look, certainly the Bible talks about teaching and practice of the church and, and, and baptism, and we should address this, but nonetheless, the Scripture draws a distinction between the mature and the immature, and in this constant, never-ending focus on on church ordinance and practice and and never getting it or grasping it, it's not what maturity looks like. Eventually, one should understand the basics of what these things mean. Again, a new convert, they hear about baptism and then they practice it, right? They they go that step deeper if if it's genuine. And maybe, maybe sometimes, you know, it's not, but if they have a genuine understanding of what that means... They, they probably would. So we see, again, that those, those elementary teachings. Now we see some other elementary teachings listed here. Uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The author is saying that these people, after a prolonged period of time, according to 5.12, keep that in mind throughout this, they are still focused on whether uh, they, will, they will have a resurrection and what that will look like and what, what eternal judgment looks like and so on. Now, again, these things are, are interesting because they seem rather fundamental. I mean, the resurrection was a basic hope of the Christian. It's, it's taught elsewhere in, in scriptures, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 21 and 22. And we know that, again, closely tied to our faith is this understanding of eternal judgment. And, and what this means, these things are relatively basic. 
Again, perhaps the Jews were discussing what these eternal states might look like or, or maybe that intermediary period. I know the Sadducees didn't necessarily uh, believe in, in the reality of the spiritual and, and all of this. Maybe they're talking about these things and they don't quite grasp it yet. Uh, I don't quite know. But that's a very real possibility. And, but I do know this. The frustration had by the author of Hebrews is not that these things are bad, or not that these things are not important or, or not fundamental. He calls them fundamental. The issue is that they still aren't understanding them after period of time and after explanation, after explanation. Again, time has passed, and they simply don't grasp it. I think these teachings about future events and you know, these are, these are great teachings. They're fundamental and necessary. But, but do know that maturity is, is more than just like knowing these things. It's embracing the reality of them. Believing that Christ will return. Believing that you will raise. It's, it's an extra element there, you see. So, what is characterizing, again, this group is is, in, in my opinion, an unwillingness to accept and learn these basics because of a cloud of an Old Testament lens that they're viewing everything with, not grasping this full extent. Now, what is the necessary takeaway for us? It's to open our Bibles, to, to read the words, to study them, to find out those meanings. Don't be contested, uh, you know, content with, with all those Old Testament types or, or anything short of the full embrace of truth concerning Christ. Start there. Now, the, the thing is, none of this, none of this growth into spiritual maturity is possible without God. Verse 3 says, of which we have uh, much, much to say in verse 3 says, and this we will do. In other words, we will press on into this deeper discussion. We will move forward into maturity if God permits. Now remember, the, the point of the author was to dive deeper into Christ. That is what he was trying to talk about, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That, in fact, is, is what he will talk about for several chapters. The next thing he wanted to teach them, he wanted to move further. They were to leave these elementary teachings and press on and, and fully embrace the reality and the picture of who Jesus Christ was. They needed to grasp him as that high priest. That was, that was the next step that involved understanding Christ. And 6.3 indicates now this we will do, that is press on into this mature conversation and, and go deeper if God permits. Listen, friends, our, our spiritual maturity, it's not possible without God. If we think we can learn even the ABCs and the one, two, threes, and then eventually get to advanced Christian teaching and solid food on our own, we are mistaken. Wherever you find yourself, whether at the beginning or the end, you are 100% reliant on God's grace for your growth. We can do nothing but be dull of hearing if not for God. To me, this tells me that a lot of maturity is rooted in, in humility and prayer. You know, sometimes there are people, just like figures I see in life, who just are very humble and prayerful. And you know, I stand up here and I teach and I talk about all these things in Melchizedek and I look at those people and I say, that is someone who gets it. That is someone who gets it. Spiritual maturity, it's a grace of God. Like faith in general, it's not something that we, that we earn. Maturing of the faith is nothing short of a miracle. Will you pray for it? Will you, in one sense, stop striving and start asking for it? Indeed, you need to be attentive and you shouldn't be dull of hearing, but guess who is the only surgeon who can perform the surgery on your dull ears? It's the Lord. Maturity only comes as God permits. And now, with that said, we move on to the warning to hold fast. We now approach a rather difficult and somewhat confusing part of, of Scripture that is this warning itself. 
Now, again, before some people, oh, he's been up there a while, before some of you start checking out, uh, we just argue to not be dull of hearing. So stay with me here for a bit longer. Uh, it might, this might get a little complicated. That's okay. Let's be attentive. Let's press in and let's pray for that. Uh, let's pray for understanding. Let's do our best to engage with this. The author was hopeful that the listeners would take this warning and, and it would be effective for them. Likewise, we should seek to understand it too. So, so here's the warning uh, in its entirety. It might be a little smaller text because I really wanted to put them all on one slide here. But if you can, if you can read it, great. If not, you can crack open your Bible. Uh, but it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance while they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. How are we to understand this text? Now, there's some important things we need to do in order to understand before we dive deeper into this. We need to know who this warning is, is for, or who, is it, who, who it's against. A principle of interpreting the Bible is to find out what the author intended. What was going on in the author's mind as he wrote these words? Now, I would like to, for a moment, try to jump into that experience of the author of Hebrews. And in their limited perspective, they, they were human. And, and find out, really, who he intends this, this message for. Who, from his perspective, is he writing to? And, again, this author is writing to, from his perspective, some genuine believers who will press on to maturity, and some false believers who merely profess Christianity. And, and both groups right now, maybe, uh, you know, as he's looking at it, appear to be in an indiscernible kind of immature state where they might go deeper or they might not. And, and the author doesn't know who is who. So we need to take that mindset as we engage with this warning. There is no reason to think that God granted the author supernatural knowledge of who is who here. As a matter of fact, verse 3 carries with it in the original language this idea of possibility. He's, he's not sure, but he's giving a warning anyway. Because the author wants as many people as possible, the true elect, to hear this warning and to grow and to really connect with Jesus the way that they should. You see? And so this warning is describing a, a picture. It's describing a picture of a subset within this group, this mixed group of believers and professors. It's describing one of those, one of those the, the true or the false. What is this describing? From verses 4 to 8, or, or at least 4 to 6, the description is of false saints who merely profess Christianity and the purpose was in order to encourage the true saints who were in this mixed group to press on towards maturity and hold fast to Christ. Recall again, keep this in mind, the author is not trying to figure out who is who. He is giving a general warning. That's what I'm doing this morning, a general warning. I don't know who is who either. This is very personal for the hearer who is listening, what they do with this warning. And, and we know that this is the case. We actually see some, some more evidence of this. There's a linguistic change. He starts using different words in verses 4 to 6, identifying the dis distinction between the subset he's pinpointing within the group. So far, if you check, uh, the author has been using we language. We have much to say. Let us press on into maturity. We will do this if God permits. And now in verse 4, he says something different. He says, uh, says those... It is they who crucify uh, to themselves. He's, he's like pointing out a, a different subset here. Then after this warning, he goes back into nine and starts talking to the group in general again, saying, uh, expressing a hope that this is not them. So this comes from the author's limited knowledge about who is saved and who isn't, and so applies generally to the entire group. 
Thus, the auth- from the author's perspective, the warning serves as a general warning to the whole group describing the fate of the, at the time of writing, unknown hidden apostates within the group in order to serve as a true turning point for for the real elect within the group. I know that was a mouthful. (laughs) But let's let's think about it again. I'll I'll, I'll say it again uh, here. The warning serves, again, as an intended general warning to the whole group by describing the fate of the, at the time of writing, unknown hidden apostates within the group. That is, those who would go back to Judaism. That is what this is a picture of. Those who are on the fence right now, but in time, will forsake Christ and go back to Judaism. That is the description of verses 4 to 6. It is describing apostasy. That is rejecting Christ. That is the thrust of this warning. Remember the reason the author is writing the book in the first place? It's to combat this temptation to go back to old Judaism. The author, again, is frustrated at this group in its entirety because they're not grasping the superiority of Christ and the gospel the way they should. And, and this, this temptation, it needs to be gone. It needs to be dealt with. And the thing, again, that would make this, someone in this particular group apostatize, the thing they would go to would be Judaism. Recall again the past, the past context is this idea of the new priesthood. And, and they're not grasping it. They're not getting it. They're, they're, some might be saying, I don't get it. I'm going to go back here. Uh, furthermore, again, this context of maturing. If you're never mature, here's what the author is saying. If you aren't maturing, you are susceptible to apostasy. The whole section, again, begins with the word for, and it explains why it's very important for the readers to progress into that maturity, to not remain spiritual infants, to really grasp these principles and to move forward with them. Ultimately, the author is saying, if you don't mature, you are a tentative candidate for this apostasy. In other words, again, the author doesn't know who's saved and who's not, and he's offering a consideration for He's offering, offering this suggestion for consideration. He's saying, if you're not growing, you may, in fact, be an unelect apostate. And this, I believe, is further evidenced by the analogy of fruit and growth later on in verses 7 and 8. The ground that is growing in maturity it produces fruit. Action, there's growth, there's movement forward. But some of these individuals who, who couldn't con, con, you know, discern good and evil and were unfamiliar with the word, they didn't have fruit. And so after this extended period of time, according to verse 12, the author needs to warn them of what might happen. Now, what of these seeming uh, Christian words that are in there? I don't know if I have it on the screen. I'll just leave this one up. We see things like enlighten and taste and partake. These are to be taken in a middle line sense. And what do I mean? I mean, do not take these words as indications of definitive salvation. Remember the intent of the author. He wouldn't just give a warning if this was referring to definitive salvation. It wouldn't even make sense. The stern warning is rooted in his own limited knowledge of the group. And it's a stern warning to, to the entirety. Moreover, uh, again, these words are not indicative of salvation. One can become enlightened and become a false convert. Many have emotional experiences in church and respond well at first, and they seem to have a new understanding of something, but they're still false. Moreover, this word taste, it doesn't always need to be taken in in its uh, full form of, of tasting things in its entirety, it's not how it's always used. It's not the, always the full embrace of the genuine experience. And evidently, it's not the full embrace because they fall away. If you've fully taken it in, fully eaten it and digested it, you wouldn't fall away. Evidently, this is not a full embrace. And as far as partaking in the Holy Spirit, well, that sounds really exciting. I, I, th- I think of Simon Magus who saw the great wondrous works of the Holy Spirit and said, wow, that's pretty cool. 
And he kind of tiptoed in and got a little, little involved, but in the end, he was revealed to be false. You see, these words are not indicative of salvation. Additionally, there are many others who agree with me. I know Wayne Grudem, he's perhaps one of the most admired, uh, he wrote one of the most admired systematic theology textbooks. He cautions again making the sal- against making the salvific implication uh, in the text. He, he writes a large paper on this, actually. Uh, he says, he, he identifies 18 words that are clear indicators of certain salvation, and none of these were necessarily on that list. These are not the main indicator words of salvation. These words do not necessitate true salvation by any means. Otherwise, again, this warning doesn't make sense in the light of the rest of Scripture, for it describes, uh, again, individuals as, as falling away. But we know that salvation, that is genuine, that's a genuine experience. It's, it's eternal salvation for that person. We see that outlined in texts like John chapter 10 and Romans 8 and 1 John 5. Moreover, even, even apart from that, in light of Hebrews itself, this cannot be referring to some kind of loss of salvation. Hebrews taught earlier uh, that this salvation is eternal in chapter 5, verse 9. Rather, this, this passage is oriented around the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And, and we're, we're almost done here. Let's just uh, try to get through to stay a little, a little bit focused. Almost done. Uh, those, again, who find themselves in that in-between, immature state who are genuine, and the Lord knows who they are, will persevere in the faith. And they will hold to Christ despite that temptation to return. This is persevering, perseverance of the saints. It's taught elsewhere. It's taught right in Hebrews chapter 3. Remember that if we hold firm, indeed, we are the house of God. It's taught elsewhere in Scripture, John chapter 8, Colossians 1, Matthew 24. This isn't something un, uh, just, just that we're throwing in here. This is something the Bible teaches. So whatever the enlightening is, whatever the tasting it was, whatever the partaking is here, it is clearly, uh, it's clearly something that has not ignited their hearts the way that it should have. And this is evident based off the fact that they indeed did fall away, according to the verse. They were dull of hearing. Verse 11, they did not grow given adequate time. Verse 12, it had not taken root. And like the rocky soil in Christ's parable, they gave up and they were choked out by the thorns. In this case, the thorns of persecution and temptation to return to Judaism. 1 John 2.19 says this about these people. It says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be evident that they are not of us. And I've seen this time and time again. You know, I went to, to Christian school. They could explain the gospel. They went, went to church. They went to conferences. They sang songs. They performed on the music ministry. But they never went on. They never personalized this and experienced the word of righteousness the way they should and later on totally have rejected Jesus Friend, holding tight to Jesus is the only way we have certainty. If you are saved, you will necessarily hold tight to Jesus. And friends, if you hold tight to the Lord, necessarily you will grow in maturity as well. Now, almost done. What about this verse 6 here? It's impossible to renew them again to repentance while again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What What does this mean? What is the thrust of this statement? You see, this terminology of re-crucifying the Son of God can be understood from really a more Jewish context. The re-crucifixion of Christ here is putting to death of, of Christ. It is this idea of rejecting Him. It is this personal cursing of Christ. Remember what it meant to hang on a tree in the Old Testament text? It's, it's this idea of that Christ is cursed, He is rejected. He is rejected, He is not the thing that we're looking for, not the thing that we really need. That's what the statement is saying. It's doing exactly what the Jews did in the literal crucifixion, rejecting him as the Savior. It's an utter rejection. And pay attention to the words, to themselves as well. In other words, Christ is indeed alive and risen. 
He was exalted. He is exalted. But in the mind of the apostate, in the mind of this teeter-totterer who will eventually forsake Christ, Christ is, is dead, cursed. He's in that dead state on the cross still. And by returning to Judaism, that is essentially what would be said by these apostate individuals. This is what is meant by putting Christ to open shame. It's describing the essence of what forsaking does, what not holding firm does, what apostasy is. This is the rejection of, of what 5.9 calls the eternal salvation. And in returning to Judaism, they looked at Christ. He said, no. When someone says no to Jesus, the author says, there's no other way to salvation. And we should not have this demeanor. So, so, so think, think about this. The author has this mixed bag. He doesn't really know exactly in the, in the bag who is going to apostatize and who isn't. And this is saying restoration for the false unelect apostate is not something that will occur in the end. Now, if they were true elect, they might wrestle, work out their faith. They might have moments where they, they struggle back and forth, periods of weakness. That's common to the Christian life. But ultimately, those who fully embrace Christ, who are connected in that mature way, they will not have this de de decisive rejection of Christ described here in verse 6. They will rather hold fast and grow. And quickly, we have the analogy that is showing this. The illustration of the true reception. In verse 7, for the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful, useful for those whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. This is, again, contrasting the mature, the person who has grasped these things and held fast to the Lord, and, and those who, who don't. And he's saying here for the mature, the mature is taking it in. He's soaking it in. Again, understanding from John 15, he can do nothing apart from him. They have this intake of Christ. And, and here's the reality for those individuals. They may have, in the early stages, of a season, have, have a season of immaturity. Every growing plant does. But as they take in that rain, as they're tilled, it won't last forever. They will, if they are genuine, eventually, given the variable of time, produce that fruit and hold fast. And they will be useful. Again, remember Ephesians 2.10. They will do those good works that the Lord has set out for us to do. Friends, to test, the test to know if you are truly receiving the word is if you are truly reaching that maturity is the fruit that's produced in you over time. That will never produce unless you hold fast to Christ. And maturity is just that holding fast. Let's go on to this false reception because uh, it's, it's uh, already quarter past. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm loving this. Or I, I could do this all day. Um, in everything, put him first. Neglect. Uh, excuse me. Uh, verse 8. But if... If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up burned. Friends, there is such a thing as false reception. It's described right here. It's similar, again, to Mark 4's parable of the, the, the seed that falls on that rocky soil. They have an initial reaction. They're joyful at first, and then when the going gets tough, when there's persecution, they stop. That, that's kind of the same idea. It's similar here in our illustration, except it's obviously particular to the nuance of our text. Our text illustrates uh, here that false receivers, they're worthless. They don't produce that fruit. They never grow up. They are producing no fruit. They remain immature. They don't practice the word of righteousness. They're not producing what they ought to. And the ultimate fate of, of these people, according to this illustration, is that they end up being burned. Likewise, friends, it might not be Judaism for us, but is there anything in your life that you have a similar demeanor about? Maybe you're considering some form of pluralism about Jesus, sort of, you know, a take it or leave it figure. I know some people who are there and are wrestling with what they should do with this, this figure, Jesus. Should they embrace him? Should they hold on to him and mature? Or should they not? 
Or maybe you want to retreat back into your life of sin. That's a temptation for a lot of people. I know people who have forsaken the faith and just because, oh, this is who I am, I'm sinning. And they go and they identify themselves. They, they, they reject this Jesus. I know many people who, who are in this state. And if you're that, in that position, if you're on the fence and you're hearing my vo- voice, please hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus' supreme heavenly gift above all things, worth more than all things, the only person whose salvation is truly found in. And, and listen, if you're confused by the complicated wording of this passage, you know, go home and study it again, I encourage you. But just take, take this. Ironically, the application is largely the same no matter what interpretation you hold. Here it is. Mature in Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Hold to the great gift that you have received and do not let it go. And for those who are saved and are teeter-tottering, and oh, I don't know, if you hear this warning and you feel like something's happening, take it and heed it. For the truly elect, those who, who God really has, who are really his, they will obey it. Grow deeper in Christ. Hold fast to the heavenly gift. And I hope those who are immature, feel immature, will grow. We're always growing. God's infinite. We can't ever be like, oh, I made it. We're always growing. This warning could actually, for some, be a means of the preservation of the true saint. God might just use it. Would you hear it? Since it's directed at the whole mixed bag, saved and unfaint, saved, it beckons the true Christian to hear it. Friends, it is what you will do with the warning that will determine which group you fall into. The true receiver or the mere professor. So let's press on together towards maturity. Let's hold, hold fast and hold tight to that treasure. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. And I pray that it, it reigns true in our hearts and that we would hold fast. We wouldn't be tempted to go back to, to worthless old things and that we would press on deeper into, into who you are. Lord, and that wherever we are, may, maybe we need to grasp those elementary principles of the gospel. Oh, that we would do that now. Oh, that you would permit this maturity to take place in us and in our church from, from the new, new saved to, to the oldest saint here. Lord, have your way in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.